yeah what up what up what up so it's been a super long time um i'm just gonna start with that apologies apologies uh life happens a lot of things been going on with me um not really an excuse if you uh enjoyed the pod and you're looking for that i probably should have came on and said something let you guys know but i'm back and uh i think i finally got things squared away and uh hopefully we won't have another hiatus like we just had so um again apologies it's been a long time but I'm back. Uh, definitely have some thoughts I want to share today. And uh, hopefully, you know, we'll be back on the grind. So you know how we do this before we get started. I'm going to go ahead and uh, give the particulars. All right. Um, again, first, thanks for uh, checking me out. Uh, if you're checking this out on YouTube, obviously, uh, you know where we are. But if not, just, uh, you know, somebody gave you the link, anything like that. You just uh, open up YouTube, type in the format podcast. We should show right up. Um if you're on social media, you can catch me at Twitter, uh, at Bruce F.A. Hope. That's at Bruce F.A. Hope. If you're on Instagram, at The Format Podcast, at The Format Podcast. If you want to email me directly, you can do that, too. It's going to be The Format Podcast at Outlook.com. The Format Podcast at Outlook.com. Uh, you, can shoot me a, you can shoot me a note. You can shoot me an email or whatever it is. You can tell me, hey, Bruce, you're an idiot. You don't know what the hell you're talking about. You can tell me, Bruce, hey, I love the show, whatever it is. Love the interaction, all right? So, uh, you know, don't hesitate to reach out. Tell me about anything I missed, anything you might want to hear me talk about. Tell me where I was wrong. Tell me where I was right. It's all good. Um, <clears throat> with that, uh, let's get right to it. We got uh, some some good things to talk about today. It won't be a super long episode, just kind of getting back in the flow, but definitely had some things I wanted to touch on. So, you know what it is. Sit back, relax, and listen up to episode 108 of The Format. particularly follow the normal format where we just uh you know i break it up into segments specifically dedicated to the different sports i'm gonna just touch on a few things kind of bounce around a little bit obviously there's been a whole lot going on in the sports world since we last talked so let me just get to what i've been thinking about um obviously big news of the day in the nfl uh jaguars coach now former head coach urban meyer just got fired uh last night so how do I get into this? Where do I start? It seems like there's so many places to start. But when uh, when this when this hire first happened and, and you know, full uh, transparency, I live in the Jacksonville area. Right. So I know what a huge deal this was for the people here. Um, we are less than 90 minutes from Gainesville, where obviously Urban Meyer won two national championships with the Florida Gators. Right. So obviously we know Urban Meyer is an all-time, all-time great college head coach, right? He has had uh, 20 game 
win streaks at three different schools. Only coach to do that. He did that at uh, Utah, Florida, and Ohio State. He's won three national championships, two at Florida, one at Ohio State, and possibly could have won one at Utah if he stayed. Really built that program into the rock that it is today in the uh, Pac-12. Um, but with all that said, you know, there was always the rumblings. Could he be an NFL head coach? Would he be an NFL head coach? And, you know, he, he hung off on that for a while. He didn't jump into that. But when he saw the opportunity to coach uh, Trevor Lawrence, you know, the the star out of Clemson, who many said would be the, uh, <clears throat> what is it? Many said that he's the, the, the best prospect since uh, Andrew Luck. I don't know if I believe that. I've talked about that on previous episodes. Uh, you can go back and check, but that's a story for another time. But when he saw the opportunity, Coach Andrew Luck, when he also saw the opportunity to get those big bucks that uh, Jags owner Shad Khan threw at him, well, obviously he couldn't turn that down. So, you know, Shad Khan uh, hired him. And I thought from the beginning that this was a bad move. I just didn't think it was good. You know, I saw it as not a smart hire, but more a splash hire, right? The people in Northeast Florida, this area, they're obviously enamored with Urban Meyer from what he was able to do with the Florida Gators. And, you know, that lore has even grown, you know, looking at what the Florida Gators for the most part have been since he left, right? Which is not great and not in championship contention. So um, end of the day, I, I knew it was a splash hire. It was designed to get excitement around the team, put butts in the seats and really, you know, uh, drum up excitement you know now if he had won which they're gonna say they you know they expected him to win and they were hoping he was gonna win but you kind of had to know that there wasn't necessary and necessarily much um much reason to believe that he would be a winner on the nfl level but uh you know they hoped that that would be the case they hoped that he would come here build a culture and really you know um kind of get the jags to uh uh you know, over, I'm not even going to say over the hill, over the, over the hump, because they've been terrible for most of the last decade and more, but there was a lot of hope in this area based on the, that flash in the pan season the Jags had in 2017, when they went to the AFC championship game and were basically one quarter from, uh, you know, going to the Super Bowl. But, um, you know, again, that was a flash in the pan season, but uh, there was really a lot of excitement in the area with the Urban Meyer hire and, you know, I guess I was one of the few voices of dissent, not that I have a, a huge voice or anything like that, but I was a person and you go back, you know, if you scroll back a while, check my Twitter, I, I definitely said that this was a splash hire, you know, and I'm going to say I knew it wasn't going to work. Uh, the only thing I thought that might possibly work was that Urban Meyer, having not too long left college, would be very adept at, you know, being involved in the draft because a lot of the prime players were players that he would have recruited, you know, when he was at Ohio State because he's going to know those college players well. Kind of like uh, when Pete Carroll first came into the NFL from USC or came back into the NFL from USC with the Seahawks, he really had his pulse on, you know, a lot of the college players and, and who was good and who was not because he helped recruit or attempted to recruit a whole lot of those guys. So, you know, I got that aspect of it, but I didn't think Urban Meyer was gonna have any long-term success and his firing proves it. I mean, it was just, I'm gonna say bungle, misstep, screw up, whatever you wanna call it, you know, one after the next here in Jacksonville that just, you know, caused problems. I mean, he didn't know how to manage things. And for me, the biggest thing I thought was um, just watching the fact that uh, this guy, he didn't even hire a good staff. Like, we know you're not an NFL coach. We know that you had some schemes and systems that worked well in college, but likely wouldn't work well in the pros. So I'm not sure 
why you didn't do your absolute best to make sure you hired an outstanding, you know, offensive and defensive coordinators to uh, assist you and 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 help you know really bridge the gap between your college experience and the pros, which obviously you have not. I mean, let's let's just look at it. I mean, I noticed Shad Khan was hoping that with Urban Meyer he would have had success like Seattle had with Pete Carroll earlier, but. At the end of the day, he ended up having more of a Nick Saban type effect. Nick Saban is arguably the greatest college coach. It's probably not arguable anymore, but the greatest college coach of all time. He didn't have success in the NFL. It's just a different dynamic in terms of how you deal with players, how you deal with management, um, you know, your power level. And clearly, Urban Meyer was a guy that came into the NFL thinking that his power level was going to be the same as it is in college. Obviously, it's not, you know. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, <laughs> he got him fired. You know, reports of multiple altercations with players, reports of altercations with his coaching staff, you know, for supposedly calling them losers, which is odd because you as the leader, you hired those guys. So what does that make you? Like, you're the leader. You're talking about you're a winner. So as such, you should be able to identify winners, but you hire a bunch of losers. That really doesn't make any sense to me, you know. Um, as a quick side note, for work, I'm reading this book called, uh, uh, well, it's is it called Extreme Accountability? But, you know, it's basically by um, a couple of Navy SEALs, and it talks about extreme accountability. And, you know, obviously from a leadership perspective, and Urban Meyer probably needs to pick that book up because he was supposed to be the leader. He did not take accountability. All he did was point fingers at subordinates while he made mistake after mistake, both on the field and off. It led to a horrible season to this point and, you know, obviously got him canned. And you know what's the worst part if you're Urban Meyer? You know, you got fired. Now you're still going to be getting plenty of money from the Jags until you take another coaching job. But all the glamour coaching jobs in college football where you you know, have cut your teeth and had your greatest success, all those are gone now. So we're going to see what's next up for Urban Meyer and how that goes. But at the end of the day, you know, I said it back then and, um, you know, I'm going to say it again. It was a splash hire, not a smart hire. And uh, we're going to see what the Jags do. And I was kind of briefly thinking, which way do they go in terms of their their coaching hire? And I'm thinking Jim Caldwell might really be a good look. He's a steadying influence. He's had a lot of success uh, throughout the NFL. You know, he got the moribund Detroit Lions to the playoffs, right? Um, he was a head coach that took the Indianapolis Colts to the Super Bowl. I mean, the guy knows offense. He's got a young, you know, talented uh, uh, quarterback, number one overall pick in Trevor Lawrence. Um, so we're, we're going to see what happens. But, you know, Chad Khan really needs to be careful in getting this one right. But, you know, what what indication have we gotten that Chad Khan is going to be able to do that? Um, so, you know, Urban Meyer's gone. Now they need to Daryl Bevel, the OC. He's going to be the interim head coach. He's he's not going to be the head coach, but he's the interim guy. We're going to see what happens um, in the offseason in terms of the head coaching search. They really got to get this job right. Um, also, you, you also got to think you got that number one overall pick in Trevor Lawrence, who everyone says is a generational talent. You can't waste this guy. Um, you've got to do a good job in getting him proper coaching and getting proper talent around him uh, through the draft and through free agency. So which way do you go in the draft?
Um, you're probably going to have a top two or three pick, uh, maybe number one, depending on how the season ends up. But which way do you go in the draft? Do you take Michigan defensive end uh, Aiden Hutchinson? Maybe, uh, you know, he's, he's a beast. He looks like he could be, you know, the next coming of one of the bosses, right? Um, he's a monster. But, you know, what do you do? Do you do you trade down? Do you try to get more since there's not necessarily a quote unquote generational guy at the top of the draft? Do you look to get more skilled talent around uh, <clears throat> around Trevor Lawrence? Um, got some good wide receivers coming out. We have good wide receivers coming out every year. Um, what do you do? The, you know, you load up the O line. You try to build the run game. Um, not sure yet. We'll we'll see as as things go on. But end of the day, um, back to the Jags. Urban Meyer got fired. Shad Khan has to get this next move right. There's just no way around it. Um, okay, so speaking of college football, I mentioned how the glamour jobs are taken. So it's not like Urban can necessarily run back to college football and grab one of those. He's it's going to take at least a year before he finds a landing spot. And again, Urban is good because uh, he's he's being uh, handsomely compensated by Shad Khan. So money is not an issue. Um, College coaches, uh, the coaching carousel was was crazy this year. A lot of big moves took place. Um, obviously, for me, if you guys listen to me, you know me, I'm a big Notre Dame football fan. So two huge moves happened there. Um, pretty much out of the blue, you know, as it seems, uh, Brian Kelly, uh, winning his coach in Notre Dame football history, picked up and uh, took off and took the job in uh, – Baton Rouge for the LSU Tigers. Um, I guess more money, more resources, uh, quote unquote, greener pastures in terms of an opportunity to try to win a championship. Now, this is a guy who, in fairness, he he won uh, national championships at the D3 level, I think. Uh, Grand Valley State, he won a couple of titles there. Uh, they moved on to uh, what Cincinnati, helped really build that program into what it is today, laid the foundation for that. Had some really quality seasons there. Um, I think his last season there, they were 12-0 and before they played, I want to say Florida, in one of the bowl games and got throttled. But at that point, he did the same thing. He actually left Cincinnati before the bowl game and took the Notre Dame job, at which point he was there for 12 years and really helped to build that program into what you see today, um, which is a program that's, you know, at the very top of tier two, and on the cusp, um, still not elite, you know, but really uh, a lot better than it was when he arrived there in South Bend. Um, he's the all-time winningest coach at Notre Dame now and uh, failed to deliver a national championship, which at Notre Dame is the standard and is always the goal, but obviously hasn't happened in you know, what about 30 years now, 30 plus years. So, um, you know, again, he's really helped to build that. So now he's on to... LSU. It's a great night to be a Tiger. I'm here with my family, and we are so excited to be in the great state of Louisiana, but more importantly, to be with you great fans. And he is a, a Bayou Bengal, an LSU Tiger, and that should be interesting to see because he's in the uh, SEC West, which is widely regarded as the toughest division in college football. He's going to have to deal with Saban every year. He's going to have to deal with Jimbo down at A&M. He's going to have to fight those recruiting wars, which is another interesting thing because Brian Kelly, as much as he's helped to build the Notre Dame program, was not known as a, you know, a real dog on the recruiting trail. So seeing what LSU is able to develop on that front should be interesting. Uh, 
So yeah, Brian Kelly's gone. So what did that leave at Notre Dame? There was some consternation in terms of would he take the staff with him? And, you know, he tried. um, Who would be Notre Dame's next head coach? And this is where it gets interesting. Notre Dame hired one-year defensive coordinator Marcus Freeman. To Father Jenkins, Jack Swarbert, thank you for challenging everything. Thank you for making a decision to believe in a 35-year-old first-time head coach. And I vow to work tirelessly to never disappoint you. Um, Former Ohio State Buckeye as a player, very brief tenure in the NFL before injury, you know, ended his career. And uh, then he was a a defensive coordinator at Cincinnati under uh, head coach Luke Fickle, who he played for at Ohio State. And... um, you know, he was he's one of the better defensive uh, coordinators and recruiters in the country before he went to Notre Dame. LSU, you know, recruited him heavily for that uh, defensive coordinator position. Um, so he, he ended up in Notre Dame, did a really good job. If, if you pay attention to Notre Dame football, did a really good job. But where his biggest impact was, was not just on the field, but he is one of the best recruiters in the country. He is a tremendous, tremendous recruiter. And um, he's probably the guy that, while he understands Notre Dame's recruiting limitations in that, you know, out of the top 300 players in the country, you know, you look at the ESPN top 300 or, you know, whatever, um, Notre Dame can generally only seriously recruit about 75 of those guys because of, you know, the academics and stuff like that out uh, up in South Bend. Um, but yeah, Marcus Freeman has really, really been a dog on the recruiting trail and, uh, that's one of the biggest things, you know, being able to maximize recruiting at a school like Notre Dame, where recruiting can be not as simple for a number of reasons as it is at your Alabamas and your Georgias and your LSUs and your Texas A&Ms, et cetera. Right. So he is now the new head coach. And it, it's so interesting because there just seems to be this air of, you know, excitement and freshness that you haven't felt in years at Notre Dame. And I'm not saying that because I'm a Notre Dame football fan. That seems to be the general vibe around the college football world. And what's really interesting, Marcus Freeman, I think he's 35 or 36 years old. And you get, you know, it, you know, it's always talked about his, his ability to really communicate with the players and, and, you know, uh, that's kind of a totally different feel that than you got with Brian Kelly, you know, with his kind of CEO type mentality. Now, again, Brian Kelly did a great job building the program to where it is. The hope is that Marcus Freeman can take it over the hump. But when you hear about Marcus Freeman, you hear some words being associated with Notre Dame football that I don't know if you've ever heard before. You, you hear hip, young, exciting, vibrant. And, you know, these are things that, you know, I've talked with with my friends who coincidentally uh, all hate Notre Dame football, but that's a different story. Um, and, you know, these are words that you never hear about. And, you know, you always hear that young players today aren't enamored with Notre Dame football the way players used to be. Like it's lost some of his luster. It's, you know, like the lore and the history doesn't matter to young players today. Notre Dame is cold. South Bend, Indiana, geographically isolated. You know, uh, only big city is probably Chicago, about two hours away. Um, you know, a lot of the great players are from the South now. A lot of them don't want to go that far from home. They don't want to deal with the cold. They don't want to, you know, deal with environments when they could go to, you know, other, you know, bigger uh, college towns, you know. And of course, the the rigorous academic workload, which unfortunately weeds out a lot of the uh, elite players. So, you know, there's a lot of recruiting limitations, but you never hear 
Marcus Freeman talking about that. You just hear him, you know, driving on and, and going and really, you know, busting his hump on the uh, uh, on the recruiting trail. You know, so this is going to be uh, this is going to be super interesting to watch and see what he's able to do. And obviously, I, for one, am excited about it. Um, probably the biggest uh, coaching change in college football, the one that kind of really started the dominoes was um, uh, Oklahoma. Uh, losing their long time, not a long time, was five, seven years. Uh, former head coach Lincoln Riley, he headed out to USC. He got the big money. He's headed to the glamour job, arguably the glamour job in college football when it's right. Um, so he's now a Trojan. And it's crazy just to watch because you see, uh, you know, decommit after decommit. I want to say there's like nine or 10 decommits from Oklahoma's recruiting class that, you know, when Lincoln Riley left, uh, you know, they they totally um, decided they weren't going to go there. Some followed him to USC, some just decommitted and decided they were going to go elsewhere. So this is going to be, you know, super interesting. I don't think it's going to take very long at all for Lincoln Riley to build that USC program back into a monster. So quick note, if you're a Notre Dame fan like myself, uh, the days of running over USC like it was nothing, those days are done. They're going to be back in very short order, and it's going to be really serious when we play against those guys. Um, yeah, back to Lincoln Riley, one of the best offensive minds in college football. And uh, now he is in a place where the offensive talent is literally in his backyard. And for USC, the key is going to be keeping those prime recruits in state and not letting them get out. Those quarterback recruits, those receiver recruits, Southern California is loaded with elite skill position players the same way Southern Florida is. So this is going to be very, very interesting to see what he's going to be able to do um, out at USC with all that talent. I don't think he's going to have too much problem recruiting. Uh, I don't think he's going to have too much problem keeping all that talent in state. This is going to be, whew, USC is going to be a monster again in very short order. So, uh, yeah, scary. Um, so with uh, Lincoln Riley going from Oklahoma to USC, what does that do? Opens up the Oklahoma job. So there were some, you know, some thoughts about it. Maybe Josh Heupel leaves Tennessee, goes to his alma mater, Oklahoma. That didn't happen. What did Oklahoma do? They actually uh, went and uh, they started dealing with a guy that they know really well. And they hired that guy, uh, former Oklahoma and then Clemson uh, defensive coordinator Brent Venables one of the best defensive minds in the country, if not the best defensive mind in the country. Um, now we look at Clemson at nine and three as having a bad year this year. Now the offense wasn't clicking the way we have seen it clicking in previous years under Dabo Sweeney, but again, top five defense, Brent Venables knows defense. It's definitely gonna be a super interesting switch to see Oklahoma's high-flying Big 12 offense kind of maybe take a step back and Oklahoma really regaining the focus on having a, a, a tremendous defense there for the Sooners, but Brent Venables is gonna do that. And especially going into the SEC, he's gonna bring that physicality, he's gonna bring that toughness in the trenches. Um, obviously he's gonna be able to recruit defensive linemen, you know, defensive backs. So that, I think that's a big step forward in terms of um, success in the SEC, which is obviously just a different brand of ball than uh, the Big 12. And they'll be, you know, Oklahoma will be heading that way in a couple of years. But I, I think it was a very solid hire for them. Also, Brent Venables was smart enough, knowing he's not necessarily an offensive guy, you know, being a defensive mastermind to get an offensive guy. I think he got uh, uh, former Ole Miss offensive coordinator Jeff Levy and uh, Levy really had that offense humming down there with Lane Kiffin in Oxford. So um, 
Smart move. We always say the key is, you know, as a head coach, you don't have to know everything, but you got to make good hires, right? So, you know, Brent Venable is going to have his, uh, his his hands, his fingers all over the defense. The defense is going to be outstanding. We know that, but he was smart enough to hire a really good offensive coordinator in Jeff Levy. Very smart move. So that now <laughs> leaves you wondering, Clemson, what's going on there? Obviously, head coach Dabo Swinney is still there. He makes a ton of money. He's won national championships. He's a made band there. But we wonder what are they going to look like because not only did they lose defensive coordinator Brent Venables, they also lost offensive coordinator Tony Elliott, who uh, has gone to take the head coaching job at Virginia. Um, that should be an interesting one. Virginia is uh, not known as a football powerhouse. That is a school that obviously is, is an outstanding academic institution. I think top five um, public school in the country academically. Um, so, you know, might not be looking to get, you know, all the all the big studs um, on the football front there. But it's going to be interesting to see what Tony Elliott can do. Um, so obviously, um, uh, Dabo Sweeney and Clemson lost two elite coordinators. We were wondering what direction they were going to go. They just promoted internally. So, um going to see you know how they keep the recruiting machine going uh and what type of players they get i don't think Dabo swinney does transfers so the transfer portal may not necessarily be an option to keep the machine uh humming but uh that may change too you know uh, as times change sometimes you need to change your tactics gonna be interesting um deon sanders at jackson state this is something that got me mentioned so when he took that job I kind of really wondered what type of success he was going to be able to have. Obviously, Jackson State's HBCU, historically black college university. Um, a lot of times those schools don't necessarily have the athletic budget. Not a lot of times in just about every case, they don't have the athletic budgets that the bigger power five schools have. So they're not necessarily able to do the same things on the recruiting trail, et cetera, et cetera. Um, may not have the ability to lure, you know, the big time recruits, et cetera, et cetera. But Dion, uh, he, you know, he won the SWAC this year. Um, he really is having a, a great influence on his players. Obviously, him being a Hall of Fame player himself, really, you know, teaching these young men right. And and he's got that program humming. Uh, and he was able to snatch the number one recruit nationally from Florida State. And that's huge, not only for his program, but, but possibly for HSBCs going forward. And, you know, I... I really didn't uh, expect that. I didn't expect that at all, but he was able to do it. That's a huge flip. That's a huge get. And who knows where that will lead down the road in terms of elite players, maybe. Um, I'm not going to say, uh, you know, being rude or disrespectful to the power fives, but, you know, really giving a, a bigger look to these HBCUs and who knows where, where that's going to lead down the road. And who knows realistically how long, not saying I've heard anything or anything like that, but who knows how long Deion Sanders may remain at Jackson State. You know, it's always been my personal thought that um, if the Florida State job opens up, you know, uh, after he's cut his teeth as a head coach, that he'd go take that job. I don't I don't know if that's the case. I haven't heard anything, you know, saying that that's the case. I haven't heard anything to the contrary. Not necessarily that I have any <laughs> deeply uh, embedded sources on that front, but you get the point in terms of, you know, just my reading and research and study on these things, but, um, definitely, uh, an amazing grab for Deion Sanders in terms of his program and 
in terms of HBCUs overall. Really, really amazing grab. Um, so yeah, college football is going to look very different uh, next year in terms of big name coaches in other places. Um, you know how the landscape is going to shake out. And oh, while we're on the subject of college football, um, and the landscape, I got to say this year I'm really happy to see Cincinnati uh, make the playoff. Right. Everyone kind of has them uh, pegged for getting smoked by Alabama. We'll see. That may or may not happen. This Alabama team, as good as it just showed it was against Georgia in the SEC title game, still doesn't necessarily look quite as dominant as some other Alabama teams we've seen in the past. And obviously, I'm not I'm not picking them to lose to Cincinnati, but Cincinnati is a really good team. Some say the best group of five team ever. I'm going to I'm going to stop right there. I think that 2017 uh, undefeated UCF team was probably the best uh, group of five team ever. That team was freaking awesome and they could really light it up. But anyway, this Cincinnati team is outstanding. They're physical. They're amazing. But they are about to see a level of beast that they have not seen before <laughs> um, when they go place to play the tie. But I can tell you, um, Luke Figgle being Ohio State, um, former interim head coach, former Ohio State defensive coordinator, he, his, I don't think his guys are going to be scared. I don't think he's going to be scared. Um, so with that, we're going to see. He's got two elite NFL-bound uh, corners. Um, and uh, it's, it's going to be an interesting matchup, especially with uh, John Mechie out for the rest of the year. Alabama star receiver, but uh, they got Jamison Williams, coincidentally, a former Buckeye. Side note, can you imagine that Buckeye receiver room if they'd had Jamison Williams, Garrett Wilson, and Chris Olave? Jeez, I mean, they had the best receiver room in the country already, but now you add Jamison Williams, that would have been wild. I guess that's why he transferred, right? <laughs> Too many great sets of hands in that room. But anyway, um, you look at it and you say uh, uh, Cincinnati versus Alabama. Obviously, Bama's got to be the clear favorite, I think. Uh, most of the sports books have double digit favorites. I don't know if it's going to be a blowout to that level, but we will find out. Um, yeah, I was saying I'm really happy to see Cincinnati have gotten in um, because we I never expected a group of five team to get in. But with that, you know, we saw the typical all year they were trying to get two SEC teams in, which is what they seem to want every year. And this year they got it. Um Two SEC teams. Uh, so obviously, Bam is great. We know that Georgia looked great all year. But now that we look back, and this is something I said as well, was Georgia really that good, or did they not have a great schedule? Yeah, they were good. But other than Bama, I'm trying to think if we go back, they didn't play too many really good teams. So of course, their defense was going to look all world, right? But even still, when they got faced against a team with really good coaching and comparable athletes, what happened? They got stomped out. Hmm. I don't, I don't know. There might be something to that. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I love the fact that, you know, we saw uh, Cincinnati get in. That's really good. You see a new fresh face. I, I just hope that they don't uh, get blown out and give credence to the argument that, oh, they didn't belong there in the first place. We're never going to put another group of five team, which, you know, I hate when people say, you know, oh, they didn't belong there in the first place. Maybe they didn't, but they earned their way there. Like if you're gonna if you're gonna make you know decisions unilaterally based on that, oh, they didn't belong there in the first place. Well, what the hell was the regular season for? What are you playing for other than your opportunity to make a playoff, right? Um, other playoff game, obviously, is going to be uh, Michigan and Georgia. Um, 
as a Notre Dame fan. I am not a Michigan fan, but I think this is going to be an outstanding game. This is going to be, you know, this has been Harbaugh's best coaching job. Obviously, he finally got the monkey over his back with a huge uh, win over Ohio State. Um, really physically, uh, you know, kick those guys in the teeth, punch them in the face or whatever you want to say, whatever analogy you want to use, you know, got to and really played the type of football that Jim Harbaugh has been trying to build all these years. You know, the really physical dominant run game dominant in the trenches defensively, offensively. Um, they've got, you know, arguably best defensive player in the country, Aiden Hutchinson, single season uh, sack record for Michigan. Um, also, I think I want to say 14 and a half sacks, 15 and a half tackles for loss, an amazing season, just an amazing season. Um, he could be the number one pick in the draft, depending on how he works out. But now they are going to go up against, well, I can't say they're going to go up against something they haven't seen before because they play Ohio State every year. And uh, Ohio State is uh, probably the team in the Big Ten, not probably, they are the team in the Big Ten that most well mirrors the type of speed and athletes that you will find, you know, in the SEC. So they're they're used to that. They won't be afraid. And the most amazing thing to me is after the Ohio State win, Jim Harbaugh did not take his foot off the gas or allow for a letdown. Now, nobody's saying Iowa was some world beater, but, you know, they didn't beat him 6-3 or 10-3. You know, they beat him 42-3 in the Big Ten Championship. So now you have Jim Harbaugh in Michigan's first playoff win. They have their first, uh, not playoff win, first playoff appearance. You have their first uh, uh, Big Ten Championship. So um, Michigan is really, they are primed and they believe that they can make a run and win it all. And it, it's going to be very interesting. Again, a really physical team can run the football, can rush from both ends, really uh, get after the quarterback. So that right there might be the difference against Georgia. They can beat Georgia if they play their A game. Um, they're not going to be able to necessarily line it up and run it down Georgia's throat the way they've been doing most teams all year. But they can run it. You know, they'll have some effectiveness. And again, Georgia does not have elite quarterback play. So with their ability to get off the edge and get to them, that could really cause problems. So that's going to be a really great game. I'm excited for the college football playoff. We got a couple new faces, so that's always a plus. Obviously, I would have preferred to see Notre Dame there, but, uh, you know, we got a couple new faces, and I love that. Um, so quick college football playoff note. Here's another thing, right? You hear constantly, I'm bringing up Notre Dame again. You know, I got pet peeves and always got some argument or some beef about that, right? So you hear... Um, when you talk about the college football playoff, Notre Dame's been there twice. They've gotten blown out twice. Fair enough. Um, they lost, I want to say, a couple of years ago, they lost 30-3 uh, to three against Clemson in the semifinal. 27-point loss, blowout. Uh, last year, they got beat by Bama. Um, uh, can't remember the final score, but they got beat handily by Bama, right? So you hear all these people say, oh, I'm sick of seeing Notre Dame. They're not a good enough team. They don't belong there. They shouldn't be in the playoff. Number one, again, this whole don't belong there nonsense. What are you playing for in the regular season if what you do shouldn't get you to the playoff, right? I don't care if you got beat by 50 the year before. If the following season you play a season, uh, you play a season and win enough games that you get to the playoffs and earn your spot, then what you did before should not matter, right? should not but you know you got the college football quote-unquote elitist to it oh they don't they don't deserve there every time they go to get blown out you always hear that right yes twice they've been there twice they have lost big but you know what's funny about that Notre Dame is not even among the top five worst college football playoff blowouts yeah 
Yeah, that's true. Notre Dame is not among the top five worst college football playoff blowouts. But they're the team you always hear about when people talk about who shouldn't be there because when they get there, they get blown out. Not sure why that is other than, you know, Notre Dame is just always on the mind of the collective college football mind, right? It's just one of those things. But anyway, I just wanted to touch on that. Another one of my pet peeves. So anyone tells you Notre Dame does not deserve to be in the college football playoff because whenever they get there, they get blown out. Yeah, that's true. But just remind them, Notre Dame is not among, they do not have one of the top five blowouts in college football playoff history. They just don't. Facts are facts. Okay. Um, quick switch to the NBA before I get out of here. Uh, Steph Curry, not last night, the night before, set the all-time uh, record for made three-pointers in NBA history, 2,974. Tremendous achievement. Yes, Steph Curry is the greatest shooter of all time. He is an absolute all-timer as a player. Now, where people rank him is kind of disturbing to me. I've heard people say he's the second best point guard of all time. Uh, No. Number one, I don't even see him as a point guard. I guess he's just listed there because he's only 6'3", but he's not the primary ball handler on his team. He's not the primary initiator of offense. Um, Yeah, he can pass it, but, I mean, let's be real. He's not a point guard, and especially in this era of, you know, quote-unquote positionless basketball. He doesn't, he's not a point guard. So um, he's, he's a tweener, right? He's a, um, you know, he's a short shooting guard. Realistically, he's, if anything, he's a short shooting guard, right? But he is the greatest shooter of all time. Maybe he's not the greatest clutch shooter, but he is the greatest shooter of all time. We've never seen a player like him who can shoot it off the dribble the way he can from range the way he can. He can do it without the ball. We see how expertly he moves without the ball. He's among the all time greats at that. He can also catch and shoot. Like, there's really no weakness to his shooting game. He's a tremendous free throw shooter. I think just under 91% for his career. He's got a mid-range game. He shoots 47% from the field for his career. Um, He shoots 43%, excuse me, percent from three for his career. Um, So, you know, he's got it all. There's really no weakness to his uh, ability to shoot. Now, with that said, we're hearing all the credit about how much faster he made it to his record than Ray Allen made it to his record. And obviously Ray Allen broke the record at a great Reggie Miller. And I look at it and I say, all that is fantastic. No question about it. But if those guys played today, there are so many shooters from the past that if they played today with all these open looks and the volume of threes they're taking, they would have insane numbers too. It's really unfair to say that, you know, uh, uh, Steph is definitively better than all those guys. Now, don't get me wrong. For the reasons I mentioned, I do believe he's the greatest shooter of all time. You know, he's, he's probably got the best combination, again, of off the dribble, without the ball, catch and shoot, free throw, mid-range. He's got it all. There's no weakness to Steph Curry's shooting ability. But with that said, volume in the current game is what has allowed him to get to this record so much faster in terms of what 500 plus games faster than Ray Allen got to his record. I heard Reggie Miller say on the broadcast the other night that when he entered the league, I want to say he entered the league in 1980, either 87 or 88, teams were taking an average teams of five three-pointers per game, right? Now, this is not better or worse. The game has just changed. In today's games, teams are taking an average of 34 plus three-pointers per game. Ridiculous, right? So, of course, you're going to see guys getting to the records faster. Now, don't get me wrong. If Steph Curry stays healthy, he's probably going to finish with 
3,500. And if he plays long enough, maybe 4,000 three-pointers. I'm not sure anyone is going to ever break that. Now, of course, we said we weren't sure anyone was going to break Reggie, uh, not Reggie, but Ray Allen's three-point record. So, you know, uh, things change over time, but who knows if the if the nature of the NBA game or the game of basketball may at some point, you know, cycle back to the big man being dominant and less threes being taken because it really is ridiculous. You watch a lot of games now and they just devolve into three-point shooting contests. So, you know, just just the ability coaching-wise and, and scheme-wise to shoot all these threes has led to these insanely um, inflated numbers. Again, Steph is the greatest shooter of all time in my estimation, but let's not make too much of the fact that he got there so much faster than Ray Allen did. Now, when you talk about Steph's place all time, again, I absolutely don't have him as a, a top, you know, top two point guard. Number one, I don't believe he's a point guard, but even if he was, there's no way I can put him ahead of Isaiah Thomas because he doesn't defend and he's not a distributor like that. Um, I can't put him ahead of John Stockton because he is a greatest shooter. Um, Steph Curry, that is obviously a three-time champ, but also, you know, he's not the, the initiator of offense. He's not the distributor. Um, that Stockton was, and he's clearly not the defender that Stockton was. So I look at it and I say, to me, he can't even be a top three point guard if you actually put him at point guard. And again, all-time great player, I got it, but yeah, no, nah, I can't do that. Um, the other thing is they always say a great player would be a great player in any era. And Steph is a great player, but what would happen to him in the 80s and 90s? I just... <sighs> I don't believe that he would be nearly the player he is now. Don't get me wrong. His ability to shoot from range taxes defenses in a way that we've never seen players tax a defense. But with that said, you look at the eighties and nineties, where if a guy's going off, he's getting picked up 94 feet. You don't see that anymore. Right? Like, can you imagine Steph trying to bring the ball up the floor against a Gary Payton, a Mookie Blaylock, you know, in some cases, a Scottie Pippen or a Michael Jordan, or, you know, all these other elite um, wing and uh, point guard defenders, you know, um, can you imagine him trying to consistently run off the screens and taking those bumps from the bigs constantly, you know, at some point, and I'm not saying he wouldn't still be able to shoot the rock, but you know, those things take a toll on your legs. They increase your turnovers They make it a lot harder. You're not just, you know, coming across half court, pulling up at the logo coaches back then weren't allowing that. So, there's a lot of things in terms of the way the game was played, the way the game was officiated, the way defense was played, all those things that absolutely would play a role in negating some, I say some of the success Steph Curry has been able to have in his career. And again, all-time great shooter, era he plays in, but let's also just, you know, take a step back, take certain things into account. All right, so that's it for today's show. Um, I definitely ran through a lot. Try to run through it quickly, but there's been a lot of things, you know, on my mind that I wanted to go over. So, um, yeah, definitely appreciate you uh, uh, kicking it with me. Um, if uh, if you enjoyed the show, don't forget, uh, click that like and subscribe. Uh, lower right corner of your screen, click that subscribe button. If you're a new listener, if you liked it, um, click the like. If you want to leave some comments, do that too. But um, till next time, which hopefully will be much, much sooner than this was from your last time, um, you know, thanks for coming in and uh, peace.